So hey everybody, welcome to episode 324 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by High Man Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we're also joined by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. All righty. But I don't have any fact check from last week and we don't have any Ask MTJC, right? I didn't see any Ask MTJC and fact check. Yeah. We just we just got everything 100% nailed it all, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Send your hugs to the folks at Slack and GitHub because they had kind of a rough couple of weeks between the two of them. Why is that? I have no idea. I'm sure there's postmortem stuff, but just like internet stuff is happening. I'm sure it's a whole bunch of folks, you know, streaming Super Bowls and online schooling and work and all that other stuff where, where we're straining at the edges of uh, hmm. network connectivity. And, and it's been probably the better part of a week that we've had various cold fronts around the United States and tons of snow in, in places like the East Coast. And even our area is slated to get some snow. So it's probably more kids and others, you know, staying home and stuff. So they're having COVID lockdown snow days. <laughs> <laughs> you you would think that there should not be a single thing as a snow day anymore, but uh, apparently that's still a thing. Yeah. But you were thinking this thing it was lots of like Super Bowl screaming and stuff this week. Oh, I guess. CBS all uh, CBS all access went down for a few minutes during oh. the Super Bowl as everybody wow. tried to, to view it, which is uh, of great irony given that they spent so much money promoting Paramount Plus, which is just a mm. rebranded CBS all access right. with um, Paramount stuff added to Viacom CBS's backlog. The CBS so, Plus went down because, or all access went down because of the Super Bowl or because of the ads? Uh, well, the I, 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 I believe since the Super Bowl was on CBS in the United States that people wanted to, to stream it through, you know, Apple TVs oh. and Roku's and, and Chromecasts and stuff rather than, than doing it through, you know, like your normal cable provider or, or over the air. And, uh, you know, it's it's rough. It's rough when your your network services are not ready for millions upon millions of yeah. the, the stampeding rumbling herd coming to your, right. your I just I just remember that old Cisco commercial where, I think I probably told you guys this story, and, um, where a guy's selling ice cream out of an ice cream truck and he's in the middle of a, like a, you know, Italian piazza, piazza where there's like, you know, like lots of room around him. And he looks out, looks up and as he's serving the kid the ice cream and there's like a, like a, like a thundering mass of kids running towards his, his little ice cream truck <laughs> wanting ice cream. That's, that's the, the vision I have of that kind of, you know, not ready for the demand kind of thing. Distributed computing is, is, is hard folks. You're in school, study that sort of thing, because guess what? Uh, every year we're like, Oh no, there was troubles buying the iPhones. Like, of course there were millions of people trying both legitimate and bots trying to all acquire these devices and yeah. distributed computing is hard. doesn't seem to be happening as much now that you mentioned that. Cause the last time we bought iPhones, was there a big thundering stampede towards them? Like nobody could line up the Apple store for one thing, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the phasing of the availability of devices, I think kind of helped. So we're like two or three weeks apart, right? Between the, the pros and the 12, the normal 12s. And then oh, right. the, the yeah. Max yeah. and Mini came out as sort of a later run. So well, do you think they do the staggering because of the demand or they do the staggering because of, uh, because it takes that much longer to get the parts? I figured it was manufacturing, you know, um, hiccups related to, to COVID. 
that happened, you know, early in the year, but it had the nice side effect of splitting up the amount of rumbling herd that comes begging for iPhones, you know. But so it feels like, like the rumbling herd has kind of not not rumbled as much since since we started buying phones online, don't you think? In the early days, you had to, it, it was, they were so hard to get, you had to call around to all the different stores and yeah. check out these websites that would tell you which store had it in stock and they never did. And, and when, when they did, you had to rush down there and, and, and get it, or you had to camp out, you know, the night before they're supposed to be released and all that. But ever since they've been available to order online, it feels to me like just the, you know, the, the internet is perfectly capable of handling that because they've, because they're ready for it. And just everyone just sort of orders it and they stagger the delivery times. So, so the, you know, the lining up and the, and the, the big like hype about have to get there first to get the phone first and is gone. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I could see that as things have matured and as there's more uh, available capacity yeah. and just easier options. And I, I would be very curious how much um, engineering goes into like the Apple store app where, you know, they've, they've really highly encouraged people like, Oh, go, you know, reselect your options. And then yeah. when we flip the switch to let you in, all you have to do is just go check out. I'm like, Hmm, well, you've downloaded all the assets or they're pre-baked into some version of the app or something. And so they reduced the network traffic and other contingents. So now you're really, really only worrying about, can we synchronously, you know, decrement the amount of uh, you know, stock that we have and charge your, your credit card and et cetera, where I'd, I'd love to know one day what, what sort of thought and processing has gone um, or processes have, you know, they learned from over the years since it's been, um, you know, more than a decade worth of them having to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I mean, the best part now too, is when you order, there's no guessing about when you're going to get it. Like, like Mark was saying in, in the early days, you had to run down and hope you got there in time the, that they had stock. Now, you know, you're getting it in two weeks, right? You were getting it in three weeks or whatever. And, it, yeah. Really sure. yeah. and it seems and, and, to me, they've done this last couple of things I've ordered. They are being very, cons- maybe this is due to the, the pandemic, but they've, they're very conservative on the date they quote you. And the last two times, the thing has arrived like a week before the date they originally quoted. That happened with the iPhone 12 and this M1 I just got. They do, they quoted a certain date on the website and then I checked back and then all of a sudden, oh, it's shipped. And it was it, it arrived literally a week before they said it was going to arrive. Oh, that's good. That's nice. Good news. Yeah. Yep. Some good news for you folks. Yeah. All righty. So we'll just jump in with some uh, some follow-up items. And we've got quite a few since we've been away for a couple of weeks. But uh, and, and so if you were living under a rock, uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but... Uh, Apparently, there was some sort of exploit in iOS 14, um, and I don't know about 13, but uh, there was a announcement last week to that we should all be upgrading to, or I guess it's the end of January, all should be upgrading to uh, iOS 14.4. Um, I don't know if you guys have done that, or you had heard of this at all, or anything about it. Well, I did the update. Um, hadn't really heard too many details about the vulnerabilities, actually. So I guess I have been under a rock. <laughs> right. But um, were they, was this the one that oh i think i did we, we might have talked about this before this is the one where someone found a way to uh well i don't remember tell, tell us about was it, it like airdrop or something <laughs> like like airdrop or or um uh, ad hoc wi-fi networks or something where they could wirelessly just uh, take control of the device and we said it was like like a movie where you just sort of look at the device and it's it's hacked sort of thing yeah yeah a remote attacker might be able to cause arbitrary code execution apple is aware blah blah Law. Yeah, it's funny. I just just finished watching Homeland. I don't know if you guys have watched Homeland. You know the the 
show about uh, the girl that's in the CIA. Um, anyway, I just watched the final season, uh, season eight, and like right up until the last show, she, you know, she's about to turn herself into the to the FBI or whatever, and she was walking along the street, and she takes her phone, she takes her SIM card out of her phone and snaps it in half. Are we still snapping SIM cards in half in fiction, um, as if that's a way of tracking where you are? Um, anyway, so and then she throws the phone into the garbage. But I just thought it was funny that that people still think SIM cards somehow, or or at least uh, writers of science fiction or fiction think SIM cards are have lots of personal information on them or something. You guys have no comment. I mean, it makes it easier, right? You can correlate those things. Whereas, okay, take take the SIM card out and destroy it, so it's harder to see. Like, oh, like, oh, look, it was going on, you know, the twelve thirty train to go to this person's house. Yeah, but right? like, surely the IMEI numbers where where they track things, right? I think they also just well, it, it, we're also not considering whether that was um, like a SIM that got purchased specifically for the committing of crimes sort of thing. Like a, <laughs> like a burner phone was like, well, well, yeah. let me buy a burner iPhone or, or Android, whatever it was they were using. Yeah, where do you buy burner SIM. SIMs? I never did figure that out. Yeah, he did I mean, buy I think burner SIMs. I buy SIMs. A burner SIM store. <laughs> um, I mean, it, is it so crazy though? Because the, the, if the, if the network, if the call is being tracked just by, if it's a completely anonymized phone, let's say, an anonymized SIM code, SIM card, then the phone, then the calls that you make are being tracked by the number, some number that's on the SIM card, not in the physical phone, because that's that's how the network identifies you. And and then if they, so they have this record of calls somewhere that were made, and right. and if they find that SIM card on your person, and and that has the ID that was used to make those calls, then they've tracked those calls, they've they've correlated those calls to you as a person. Yeah, right? I don't know. I, I think I think the infrastructure is way more sophisticated than what SIM card you have in your phone, you know? Because, I mean, like I said, the, the IMEI numbers, how they actually track the physical device, and, you know, and the, ra- and the radio has a MAC address and all that kind of stuff. And, and then you're using some sort of payment vehicle to buy time on this, this phone. I don't know, just Spycraft just, you know, eludes me. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, speaking of which, there's a show called Spycraft on Netflix. Uh, yeah, so uh, just to follow up here, um, yeah, we're on the M1 um, computers. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a new startup modes. And uh, my friend uh, Zvon has another article here. Um on his at, at your server website, uh, talking about the different kind of modes to start up. Like I've been, you know, you know, working on Macs for forever. It seems like, and you know, the, I know all the key commands, you know, to get them to boot into recovery mode or to target mode or what have you. And the M1 has changed all that in terms of how things are how things are loaded. And I think the key is you hold down the power key in some ways, and you get this new startup manager thing that comes up. So, Mark, now that you have a uh, a uh, M1, you may want to just have a gl- glance at this article. So. You yeah. know how to get in and out. This is good to know. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I, I do wonder where this in, where he got this information from because mm-hmm. there was no manual that came with it that said there were all these new things. And and I haven't I, well, I haven't been looking for this information, but I haven't seen this information anywhere before. So this is actually pretty, really good to know. Well, like me, he's a Mac IT guy, and, mm-hmm. and uh, for years he's taught the, uh, the in Canada anyway. He's taught the course on you know Mac uh, Mac server admin that, that the Apple certified courses. One of the instructors, so he probably put this together himself. These look like screenshots that, that have been made like with a camera or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's good. I mean, yep. I, you know, like like I said, the, the different ways to get in and out. It's it's pretty much all the same routine uh, to get into the startup manager it's called or whatever and uh, different ones. So if you want to re- reinstall your Big Sur or open up Safari and browse around and all the sort of, you know, run disk utility, you know, set up your, your password for your firmware password and that kind of stuff. All that can be done through this, through this uh, interface, which normally is done by either holding the... On the old Macs, you would hold on the option key to 
choose a startup drive or you would hold down command R to go into recovery mode, command T to go into into uh, target mode, command C would run would boot from a, a CD drive or a DVD drive. Remember when we used to be able to boot from CDs and DVDs? But yeah, I remember when you used to be able to boot from floppies. <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. In fact, I have a computer that runs off floppies. As a matter yeah. of fact, now you mention it. Yep. Anyway, but uh, right. no no more PRAM. That's I don't know if yeah. I'm happy or sad about that. I guess I'm probably happy about that because it always kind of sucked that you had to zap the PRAM every once in a while. Well, the SMC still is. The, the, lately, the SMC has been more troubling than the PRAM. Well, there's no SMC either, according to this um, article. Very last line of this article. Oh, no longer seem to be able to wrap. No longer seems right. to be available. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's like, like the, I think the closer we've talked about, you know, how the Mac OS is moving towards iOS in terms of um, its, you know, features and stuff. Like that. I think people are probably thinking more like desktop kind of stuff, but it seems like more under the hood, uh, they're moving more towards, uh, they're, they're converging in terms of how the hardware is set up, right? Because they don't really have these modes on, on iPads and iOS as well either. They have they have some, but not, not as sophisticated as this. As this. Alrighty. Um, but now that we we're on the subject, I just wanted to get Mark. You you received your M1 a I couple did. of days ago. I did. You want to give us the rundown on what your experience is so far? Yeah. So I got the. I think I talked about this earlier about what my plan was, but I got the the M1 Mini. Uh, and the reason I chose that one, well, my old laptop, which I've talked about many times, was a 2013 model that served me well, but was getting to the point where I was kind of eyeing it, wondering if I was going to get up one day and in the morning and have it you know, not, not wake up, you know, so, so I figured it was time to get something new. Uh, but yeah, I, I wasn't thrilled about the laptop offerings with the M1 and, you know, we know that there's going to be better ones next year. So I figured I'd get a mini, uh, which will tide me over until a year or whenever, when the new Mac, uh, MacBooks come out. So, so I did that. I got the mini, I got the 16 gig, uh, version with a terabyte and it took, like I said earlier, they, they quoted about a month delivery time, but it actually showed up in, uh, just under three weeks, which was which was a real nice surprise that was great really easy to set up um it actually has more ports it seems like than than uh, the the 15 inch macbook pro that i use uh, that may not actually be true but there's but there's a, there's usb a ports which is which is actually kind of nice because i can hook up my monitor through the usb a port um and uh because i have a, a you know display what is it called the display connector uh, that i convert to usb a that i that i use for that uh, so yeah, so it took, you know, I just, I, I did the restore from, from, uh, time machine and it took all night, but next morning it was good to go running Big Sur. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, it's, it's, I haven't had any issues yet. Uh, I haven't. Uh, had, well, I did, it, you know, did have to do, when the first time I ran it, I had to do some Rosetta. I had to, I had to install Rosetta and things like that. I guess it wasn't installed by default, but it just did it automatically the first time I tried to run an app that, uh, that needed it. Um, and it's compared to my 2013, it's, it's pretty snappy. It's pretty fast. Uh, so I'm pretty happy about that. Um, I haven't run into really any issues yet at all. So, so are you finding that the, when you open Safari, for instance, it's like a single bounce and then it's open or? Uh, I haven't really noticed, uh, but let, <laughs> let me try. I mean, I haven't certainly haven't noticed it as slow. Yeah, no, I, I find yeah, that, that single bounce uh, and it's open. Yep. Yeah, same yep. thing with Xcode and things like that too. Um, I, I I was going to ask too. So so there was no was there any um, facility for you to do like a disk to disk transfer? Like I guess I guess lack of ports, right? Was your like you couldn't put your old Mac into target mode and then hook it up like a, and just do a migration off of it, right? Oh, uh, I didn't even try that because I I actually did some research 
research on that and and looked up what is the preferred mode and right. the prefer they actually say it it is preferred to restore from a time machine backup rather than from a uh, disk using or the from migration a network drive were you on a disk from a di- well, I, I, I connected a physical time machine disk oh, okay okay yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 rather than trying to go through it it would have been horrendously slow through a network i mean it already was slow but it would have been even ridiculously slow through a network uh so but yeah i mean i could have used migration assistant but i chose not to so we're in a it will work pretty well. I do have all my old 32-bit applications still in my applications folder, and obviously they don't run. But uh, oh, wow, but yeah. those you know those didn't get well. I mean that's kind of my fault. They've just been sitting there for a while now, uh, and I have to just delete those manually. Were they running under Catalina anyway? Like they weren't, right? No, I didn't have Catalina on that machine just oh. because I had some 32-bit applications. That was exactly why. Right. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Yep. I'm surprised that it actually installed them. Thinking, you know, I kind of thought it was going to just remove them too, but but you know, I could see people being pretty pissed off if it just removed them without telling you <laughs> yeah i could you could see people getting pretty unhappy well, about that so so they probably yeah, chose yeah. not to do that yeah yeah well, i, did, about I my... did have some uh kind of funny things that i had to do for some some development work that i was doing but you know this is all like command line unix level type stuff mm-hmm. um some things like for example uh go language golang right. uh if you install that from home First of all, well, first of all, you can't install Homebrew directly. I thought Homebrew just came out 3.0. Well, it, I had to go and uh, open. Uh, well, I had to. I happened to open an, uh, an old shell with uh, with some kind of special command that they gave me on the Homebrew website, and then I could install. And I'd have right. to look up exactly what that was. But it was. Well, just do you remember that that, that post that Jaime talked about on the last show where where you could have two terminals? You make a copy and set one to use Rosetta and the other one to use. Yeah, that's what it was. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what it was. Yeah. But once I did that, then Golang, the existing version on Homebrew doesn't run on the M1. Uh, so there is a beta version, but you have to go and install that directly from, you can pull down a DMG from, from their website and install that. Uh, so there's just a couple of little things like that, uh, that, you know, those aren't, those aren't things that your average user is going to be doing. So I can't really fault Apple for that. It's, um, you know, I'm installing third party software. So it's, it's, it's uh, Google's fault that Golang doesn't work on the M1. <laughs> Not Apple's fault. <laughs> right, right. Well, since we're on the subject of, of M1s and my experience too is that uh, and we were just going to talk about it before the show and, and that's the uh, the DTK has been, we've been getting notices from Apple saying they're time, time to send them back. They haven't given us the instructions on what to do yet. Um, so I dug my box out. But, uh, and we were talking I think the original offer was $200 US, which is nothing to shake. You get quite a few Tim Horton coffees with that. Um, you know, not that you could use it for that, but, uh, and, and there was a restriction about when you could use it, but I think there was a lot of complaints from people on socials and online and stuff like that. And Apple has increased the credit to $500, which I, if I'm not mistaken, was what we paid for it in the first place. Um, and then we get to use that as a credit towards the purchase of a, a new, a new M1. Yeah. I was actually about to ask you that. M so something. was yeah. it $500 that you paid? I think I'm pretty thing? sure it was because, uh, it might've, it might've been 550 or something, but it ended up being 700 and something dollars Canadian for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Plus GST, blah blah blah. But you know, so that's you know, that's that's half, like you said, halfway to buying an, uh, a new M1, whichever way you go, right? Mm-hmm. So, and to be honest with you, like, and I made this point on our Slack in, in that, and I've said this to a few people who've, who've listened that you know, when when I went ahead and decided to get the DTK, I knew that I was just paying Apple to let me use the machine and work on my apps, you know, to you know, to make them compatible with the M1s or whatever, or the silicon, I should say. Um, 
and I wasn't really expecting to get anything back for that, you know. And and I and I heard that you know James Thompson talked about on Twitter about how when he was on the uh, the was it four eighty six when they originally did the uh, the switch over to Intel, there was a beta program for people, and and they did the same thing, and they got like you know they didn't get like the money back, they got something, but they didn't get a full refund kind of thing. And kind I kind of went into it knowing that. And my other point is that if you're a company that is making money on Mac software or you know iOS software and you're you're profitable right like maybe you're in that million dollar club that, that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago I'm sure five hundred dollars to spend on an on a DTK is not a lot of money right so um, I kind of you know I'm, sure. I'm glad Apple decided to, to go ahead and change the policy which is great for me you know but but I was happy with with the two hundred dollars they were going to give me right I mean I think you're looking at it in a very healthy way I do think well there's there's two different things going on here right so I very quickly want to address that I think given the size of Apple, it absolutely would have made sense to just, you know, make the developers happy because um, it costs you very little given your size to uh, to do so. That's a little bit separate than strictly from like a business transaction standpoint. What did they owe you? And it's like, well, they kind of owed you nothing. I think um, you paid, let's say, $500 participate in this program and you have to return the device afterwards. So it's kind of like, hey, I have paid $500 for hypothetically my business to be ready right. for yep. um, software uh, launch on the first day. So there's there's a symbiotic thing, right? Where it's very clearly in Apple's benefit to have people update their software and have it ready day one. So that's kind of where I'm like, you know, Apple just, you should have just done people a solid instead of penny pinching on, and going back and looking really bad and, and, uh, and cheap um, uh, from it. But from a, uh, you know, for you as, a, as an individual, not you specifically, but for people listening as individual developers, is like, did you kind of just want to, you know, tinker around with it and you weren't really a serious business and now you're like oh my gosh i thought it was gonna basically play with this toy for free and now i'm only gonna get 300 of it back subsequently 500 so you're, you're made whole i'm like i think that's kind of where some more of the anger is coming from that people didn't realize what they were buying into and i think yeah but if you read the terms of the serious developers uh, there was really no promise made by apple to say you're going to get back your full or anything really it was just sort of you get to use it for a while and then you're gonna have to send it back that was what the, the agreement was. Oh yeah, yeah, to- totally, totally. Which I think you know, if you've got a, a a business that that does like you know some serious money from from your apps, it's like, dude, yeah, absolutely. I would easily spend ten times more to make sure that my my business is is uh, you know ready for continuity, right? Like you'll you'll spend more than that on on just insurance for your business, right? Um, and and that's where I think there's probably a little bit of a disconnect where some folks either felt entitled for reasons that didn't make a whole lot of sense, given that you weren't strictly speaking uh, entitled in a very literal sense to anything other than you give us 500 we give you a device for a limited amount of time we take the device back um and yeah and I mean, also you signed a contract back. right i mean it's yeah. it was a, yep. yeah, yeah. You, you know you lease a car and you pay you pay the the lease every month and then you give the car back at the end you don't expect to get and you don't own the back car. right yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah but i think there were just uh, probably too many folks who but oh yeah well that's what they said but this is you know this is what they did back in like the 90s or early 2000s like well i mean probably completely different people managing the program now are you sure they will have the same sort of thoughts and and i also do highly suspect there are a number of folks who just wanted to, to play with the shiny and didn't really need the dtk right mm-hmm. so i calculated out this math and i was like all right what would it have really cost apple like i'm gonna i have no numbers 
I know nothing here, but I'm like, let's say they had 10,000 of these devices go out. And that, that seems like a lot. Um, 10,000 of these devices. So it effectively costs Apple like 300, sorry, 3 million extra dollars for the giving you Notwithstanding a full also 300 R&D on, top on the, the device too, right? Sorry? They also had to do R&D on the device. They also had to design it, engineer it, you know, get it manufactured. I'm sure it cost them something to do this, right? Oh, sure, sure. But that's like, you know, capital investment for like, you know, trying to make sure that there's continuity of their their uh, third-party developer ecosystem. I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, why why did Apple, somebody, somebody somewhere at Apple very clearly made the decision, whether they made it explicitly or carelessly, or they just thought like, hey, you know, I've got a really good idea to get myself a bonus. Somebody said, okay, so we charged them 500. <laughs> if we give them $200, but a very limited time, it's like they have to use it by May. And guess what? There are absolutely no new M1 devices coming up by May. Let me tell you. It's like somebody said, aha, so not only will we have reclaimed in most cases, you know, at least, you know, $300 uh, that we've gotten to, 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 to get away with the, the appearance of the $200 isn't real. Cause it's like one of those rebates that nobody ever expects you to actually, you know, turn in and, and, and follow all the proper procedures. Like, you know, that $200, I'm like, dude, okay, just accept the fact if it was $200, you were willing to give back as credit. What does it cost you extra? It's like, well, for $300, extra across 10,000 devices, that'd be $3 million or like roughly the amount of money that Apple probably spends on literal apples at like Apple's campus, right? <laughs> like it's yearly budget for apples. The the fruit is probably $3 million or less. So it's like this, this is the smallest of rounding errors. And I, I have to believe that somebody was either being very, very foolish or was incentivized to like, hey, Lopez, find a way to make a little bit more money for this department. It's like, hey, I've got this idea <laughs> and yeah. then didn't float it past the right people who would have probably stepped in and say, Hey, don't, 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 don't be, you know, don't be chintzy on this. Don't be Scrooge McDuck. Like just, just make them whole. Well, it, could have, it could also been that charging, charging something for this, this privilege, you know, as I'm calling it, charging something for this privilege also vetted out the people who don't really need to do this. Right. I mean, and you know, if they had made it a dollar, like they did for the Apple TV, the, the they would have sold out in a second. Right. The fact that you had to have this $500 bar, right meant that you, you know you had to be willing to part with five hundred dollars to use this device for whatever six months or eight months or whatever it's been right you know yeah yeah there that, that pricing floor definitely helps weed out some of the some of the folks who weren't you know sort of serious about you know because apple's not doing it out of charity they're like hey you get to play with this toy it's intended to be please yeah. make your software better it's good for you so you can continue to sell software and better for apple so that it has this wide variety of software that's available for the m1 it's actually pretty standard practice to have a, a development kit that you charge for you know if you have a hardware product for sure you know if you if you are selling a chip let's say and you want users to develop a system around that chip well you sell a hardware kit that they can plug the chip into and use to, to build their thing around that's really standard practice what isn't standard as far as I know is is having to give it back at the end that's the unusual thing yeah well I mean that said I mean I, I don't think anybody's mentioned this but in I think in the letter they sent us it tells Tells us that the device will no longer update anymore. Like, like yeah. whatever beta of software we have on it now is where it's going to stop. Like the software updates won't run on it, which is which is crafty too, right? But I think that you know necessary in this case, right? Yeah. What would they have done if you just didn't return it? What will they? I do? don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't know Probably what the deal nothing, is there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's Again, the another reason why they charge five hundred bucks. I'm sure they're going to lose a number of these to the people who want to keep them and put them on eBay in ten years, right, or whatever, right? Yeah. I don't. I don't think the 
I don't think the vast majority worried about the cost of the the hardware that they're losing, though. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, speaking of weird new hardware, too, so um, I I have an iPhone 12 Pro, as you guys know, and um, so I was uh, getting my Mac fixed at at one of the stores, and and I asked, inquired about a MagSafe adapter. Anyway, so I ended up getting one for my iPhone 12 Pro, and I was concerned about, um, I use a third-party case on the back of it, and so there's like, you know, there's like, I don't know, half a millimeter of distance between the back of the phone and, and this. And and surprisingly, the, the MagSafe does work through the other plastic. Um, I think that if you look at the cases that they have, that Apple sells, they have like a little, I'm, I'm assuming it's some sort of magnetic ring that, that fits on the case and so that it makes a better thing. Like naked, um, na- and like to take a naked phone and connect it to the MagSafe, it just, it glues right on, right? The bit's slippery and it does tend to come off on this, this third-party case, but I think it's because you know, the magnet is held a first uh, distance away from the actual phone. But it's cool when you plug it in, it, it does the sort of like little circle thing that the watch does when you plug the watch into the charger. You get that little graphic with the lightning bolt on it and, and the green ring. Um, but yeah, and it's pretty quick. It, it, it definitely charges much faster than a, than a key charger. So yeah. money money well spent. You do have to plug yeah. it into a proper USB-C uh, port with 20 watts of power, I believe, right? They can run it off a USB Mac or you can run it off the iPad charger. I have one too, and I use it without a case at all. Uh, and it's it's on there pretty tightly. In yeah. fact, I worry a little bit that it's a little too tight that it's going to scratch it or something trying to pull it off. Oh, really? Yeah. But it, but it hasn't seemed to have had any issues. Well, it's interesting too with those wallet sort of card holders that you can get for the back of the phones. And yep. I, w- I would worry that those fall off, but apparently the, mag- the magnets are really strong, like you said, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Enough about that. So I guess, well, speaking of hardware, back to Jaime. Yeah, I wanted to talk briefly about the, uh, I'll, I'll just read the, the title here from this Ars Technica article that we'll have uh, linked in the show notes for those of you driving at home. So, sorry, small phone lovers, the iPhone 12 mini was Apple's 2020 sales flop, which is juicy as far as as, uh, headlines go. But when I look at the chart, and again, this is an audio-only medium, so recommend you pull over or something and and check the show notes. So, I think it is true in some respects that the the launch of the 12 mini in the same year that the SE, which is also a a smaller and and cheaper phone, maybe wasn't the best mix, right? Um, But combined, in terms of small phone usage, I'm like, well, you know, if we say this is 5%, according to this counterpoint research, and visually, I think the SE is a little bit more than five. We're talking 11, 12% of their sales would have been small phone devices like the iPhone SE, the iPhone 12 mini. I'm like, well, I think I personally wouldn't have have launched the mini and the SE in the same year, but as far as you know, small phones go, I'm like 12-ish percent is probably not too bad. I mean, I, right. I yeah. certainly yeah. wouldn't want to remove that from the list of iPhones that I was selling, you know, um, trying to find uh, a phone that fits everybody. I, I do think it is also true that if you are a small phone lover, you are very clearly in the minority, right? Like the, the facts <laughs> and data speak for themselves in that uh, two times, you know, into the well and you, you weren't able to overcome any one of the uh, 12, 12 Pro or 12 Pro max the most expensive phone in terms of sales so you can gripe about it all you want and i'm not saying you're wrong like whatever fits your needs fits your needs i prefer pepsi and most people prefer coke um <laughs> you know i'm not gonna say you're wrong but just like just realize that like when you're like oh they should make us another you know small phone it's like well i mean you, you gotta gotta convince people to vote with their wallets then because mm. clearly people are, are not agreeing with you so are we talking it's 6.99 for uh iphone 12 mini is that right us dollars i want to say that is pretty close to correct so it's it's pricier than the iphone se can you buy the se let me see what the se is costing 
caveats with, you know, COVID and pandemic and economic uncertainty and et cetera. But uh, I don't think we've ever seen, um, other than pent up demand, I don't think we've ever seen the SE or other small devices just like blow things out of the water. And given that the 12 Pro Max, the like very, very expensive device easily outmatches both the SE and the 12 Mini combined, it's like, well, I mean, can you really fault Apple for making larger and more expensive devices if people keep buying them? Well, I mean, there's a whole Face ID argument too, right? But the, um, the and the home button thing, but the, the SE, which looks very much like a six, right? I guess in terms of its style, uh, it's uh, three ninety nine, so that's like two hundred dollars less than than the, the mini, right? So I think that the mini kind of caters. It's kind of like when we the year we had all those too many iPads. Remember that, and you never knew which which iPad was the right one to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you want to have a, an inexpensive iPhone, then the, the SE makes a lot of sense, right? Um, you know, because then then it's you're you're not you're, you're basically the four hundred dollar four hundred dollar investment as opposed to seven hundred dollar investment for a mini or twelve mini, right? So it's whether it, I guess if you want the, the better features, but the smaller form factor, the mini makes sense, right? But uh, yeah, it's hard to say. It's the, it's the whole medium popcorn argument, right? Like to think that I think the iPad, the the twelve mini loses in that it's only a few hundred dollars more to go to a proper twelve, right? Uh, or twelve, yeah, because it compares to the twelve, not the twelve Pro, right? Yeah. No. Well, the mini has 5G, right? And the SE does not. Right. But like I said, if you're, if you're not in, if you're not, if you don't want to spend a lot of money on a phone and you want to get a, an iPhone, then the, the, the SE makes sense, right? Right. Like, right. 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 No. So I, where I was going with that is that that's presumably the reason for having both models available at the same time, the SE and the, and the 12 mini. Because in theory, well, whether this is reality or not, but in theory, there might be people in, in, in the, you know, in, in the 5G coverage area who need the fast speed, but like the small form factor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my guess would be that by this time next year, the SE will cease to exist and the 12 mini will take the position of the, the main small phone because it won't be any 4G version. That's my guess. So this next story is, is I've been working on a little bit of a side project. Um, Carol's wanted me to write an app for her for a couple of years now and I've been procrastinating. Um, but yeah, and I'm a, I'm a fan of Core Data. And so we talked about Core Data and SwiftUI a few months ago. Um, and so I decided to dive in. I was actually more interested in CloudKit because I, I do have actually an app on the store that uh, where you can export and import information, but I, I never really got around to doing CloudKit on it. And so I was looking at whether I can, you know, put cloud, put CloudKit support into my Core Data app. And and it is surprisingly simple to switch from the old um, iCloud um, sharing or whatever it's called to CloudKit. CloudKit is like it's like one click in in the um, app setup when you go into the uh, capabilities. Um, you just turn on you turn on background processing for notifications, and uh, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. So with Core Data, you know, you've got the persistence layer there, um, and you basically write. It, it, you know, Core Data is, is re- really simple now with the, the new persistence container. Persistent container is it called, or persistent store? Persistent container. Yeah, it's it's so yeah. much easier. I mean, it, that's been around for a few years now. Yeah, yeah, but, but it, it really, really changed everything with with Core yeah, Data. Yeah, it's way way yeah. easier to use. Yep. And, and uh, with SwiftUI, it's super simple. And then with uh, CloudKit, um, like I said, it's almost like w- one click to set it up and, and uh, you know do a test on a couple of devices. The simulator is not quite great at at, core, at iCloud.
cloud syncing, but the, I ran it on my iPad and my iPhone, and it was like pretty simple. Um, so I've got a couple of um, links here for people who want to go down the road, go down that route. Um, one I found yesterday from Blackbirds.com is a is a tutorial, very clear tutorial on building a core data app with SwiftUI. Um, it's interesting because he doesn't go, th- you know, you start off with the core data template, but he gets rid of the stuff and then brings it back in one step at a time to sort of so you get a better sense of of how you're uh, how they're using the environment variable to make your manage object context and um, and then as well how you you refer to things within the app when you're when you're working with the data and then the second one is from uh, raywonderlick.com and it's a few it's like last year I think was when they when they wrote this one and this one is about using core data with CloudKit so both of them cover SwiftUI so and they both take a different approach to it um, but uh, they're very simple tutorials you can do them in like an hour and, and uh, you'll have a good understanding how to do the stuff so kind of cool so I'm you know happily building my app and sinking in the cloud, as it were, right? Jim, not only am I happy that you were getting that working, um, is this technically follow-up to an Ask MTJC? Didn't somebody ask us a while ago of like, hey, I've seen tutorials guy? with persistent um, store and I've seen CloudKit stuff and I haven't seen something that combines the two. Yeah, I think we didn't have an Jolt, answer at Jolt the time. Guy? Yeah, it might have been Joel Guy asked us that one. Yeah, so here, here you go. go. <laughs> <laughs> your, your continued patronage is eventually rewarded. Um, yes. He's actually he's actually one of our patrons too. So even even more yeah, more uh, oh, coverage, more literal than I was uh, was intending. Yeah. Anyway, um, and I put this one next one up here, but Jaime originally posted it in our Slack channel, I think, right? Um, and that's the uh, and good news for Canada, yay Canada! Um, Apple Card and Apple Card Apple Cash trademarks have been approved in Canada, which means that you know that that's the first step in getting getting the name the trade name registered, um, and then uh, it shouldn't be too long before some form of Apple Card will come to, available to Canadians. Uh, so we'll be able to buy our Tim Hortons, uh, Timbits, and our Mac hardware with the Apple Card. And hopefully get the, the same you know deals that uh, you, our U.S. patrons have been getting for what? You've had the Apple Card for a couple of years now, right? Yeah, at, at least, least a couple of years, yeah. yeah and I Apple think Cash, I it will be too. two years in for me, like August, and I think July is when people were able to get them if you join the early wait list or something. So this other one is a real quick hit um, for those of you out there who are fans of the show and fans of Spotcast and maybe users or maybe you have an Amazon Prime account, but uh, Amazon Music a couple of months ago started adding podcasts to the mix. And so officially they launched it last week. So now you can enjoy more than just code. I've got a link here to the Amazon Music page. Uh, you can listen to more than just code or you can listen to Spotcast on Amazon Music as well as Google Play and Spotify. And of course, you know, the usual suspects, uh, the usual podcatchers like Overcast, Apple Podcasts, um, Pocket. I think what's the one that Greg uses? Pocket. Pocketcast, like I think. Pocketcast is that yeah, the one yeah, that yeah. was owned by NPR and that they were spinning back out? I have no idea. And and then uh, Castro and all those kind of guys as well. Cool. Real time follow up. I just checked my my uh, finance software, and the first balance for my Apple Card was on August twenty third, two thousand nineteen. Oh, so not yeah. even two years, year and a half. Yeah. yeah. Well, it normally takes a while for them to ink deals between different countries too, right? So yeah. and then they have to find someone to carry the financing and whatever. All right, because I don't think we have golden. golden Goldman Sachs in Canada. Right. Anywho, um, this is a new one. So, Mark, you have an Apple Watch? I do have an Apple Watch. And Jaime, you have an Apple Watch? I do. And I have an Apple Watch. You can now unlock, well, 
soon, I shouldn't say now, but soon you'll be able to unlock your iPhone while you're wearing a face mask if you have an Apple Watch. Because in 14.5, they've added the ability to unlock your phone by authenticating through your watch. Ta-da! Yeah, this is another thing we're going to throw on the mountain of MTJC bump things where this is pretty much (laughs) as we described, like, hey, if I can unlock my MacBook with my watch, why can't I unlock my phone with my watch, given that you can you can sort of tell it's probably me. You can tell that there's a mask. Why not, you know, uh, do right, me a solid. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm sure those, those fine engineers at Apple listen. They're like, oh, that's a good idea, MTJC. Thank you. We'll, we'll take that one. So so do you think under the hood, do you think that they're actually still using the facial recognition to, to recognize your eyes anyway, and then sec- using like a second factor authentication with the watch? Yeah, so I think, so there's, there's some uh, snarky people like, oh, finally, why did it take so long? It's like, well, think about this. Normally, um, the phone unlocks the watch, right? So now you have this bi-directional thing. How do you accommodate that? You have to be very careful. And you have to be extra careful because you don't want to, oh no, we've made this too permissive and now everybody and their brother and sister can unlock your your um, your face ID protected device, right? Like you, you still want security. And this presumably took some time to figure out all the different scenarios. What would be the use cases, aggressive, um, you know, uh, security testing and probably training of the models of like, okay, how can we be sure that, you know, with varying kinds of masks, not everybody wears the same kind of mask. Not like it's standardized in any, uh, you know, realistic ways. Some people are using bandanas and some people have, you know, plastic ones and some people have, you know, homemade ones and some are using the, you know, the more standardized ones that you might buy, but colors and texture and how does it fit on your face? Like there's a lot that goes into, you know, how do we train a model? So like, okay, there's a reasonable chance that it's this user. We have detected that there is a mask. Now check to see if the watch is within range and the watch is valid and etc. Like I'm, I'm sure it's non-trivial. Obviously, I would have loved to have had this right at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm not going to complain given the security concerns that go into that I want it to be, you know, still secure, but yes, convenient in 14.5. And they probably had the solution, the technical solution six months ago, and it took this long to get it through the lawyers. Right. <laughs> yeah. To be honest. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's true. It's true. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, the watch, I, Carol was complaining to me a couple of uh, weeks ago that she has to un- use her phone to unlock her watch you know, or just enter the when she first puts it on because she doesn't always grab her, her her phone and her watch at the same time and she was sort of saying why do I have to enter my passcode into my watch and I explained to her that the two work together and that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to iOS 14.5 because this will help make things more convenient when I'm out and about. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's still kind of rare and I don't want to sort of dilly-dally anywhere that I do happen to go it's largely, you know, transactional and get out. But it's still sometimes like I don't want to have to put in my passcode or do other things. Um, and for 14.5 for me, um, I will finally be able to use the Xbox Series X controller that does not have compatibility <laughs> right, until 14.5. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yay, I'm kind of looking forward to getting Apple Arcade and, and playing some of the, you know, games that kind of need a controller. For me, I see this as, as a nice thing, but but the truth is the, the thing I use my phone for most these days when I'm out and about. Granted, I'm not out and about that often. So uh, it, the thing I use it most for is is Apple Pay. And if I can wear my watch, I can just use the watch for Apple Pay. So I don't actually right. need to yep. use the phone. Right. right. So it's it's a I see it as a nice to have, not a not a world changer at this point. But it's nice. But it is nice to have. Yeah. What did, you know? I can tell you, I I'm I'm walking my dog every day, and we have a we have a daily hangout we do in the morning before we start work. Uh, we have a, a coffee call, and we all get together and just you know just chew chew the fat about different things and 
um, I'm like I said, I'm often often walking my dog, and and since it's like minus ten here, Mark, I have gloves on, mm. mitts on actually, mm-hmm. and I have my hat, my toque on, and I have my my glasses which go black because I'm outside in the sun, and then I have a face mask on. So you know, I regularly, if I have to do anything on my phone, I have to you know take off a glove and yeah. you know yeah. risk frostbite to you know <laughs> unlock well, the phone or I, hit the mute button. I will point out before people are too impressed here in the mm. states that you are talking about minus 10 celsius not minus 10 fahrenheit oh, right <laughs> but well, minus 10 fahrenheit is what pretty cold yeah minus 10 celsius is pretty cold too <laughs> it's below zero right? you below go fahrenheit to degrees. celsius that's negative 23 celsius if it's negative 10 fahrenheit oh really or was it the <laughs> other way i miss i might have missed it i don't know it's math yeah. <laughs> all right let's move on to our uh what's new in swift there i mean well wait a minute hold on let's so zero degrees celsius is 32 oh. degrees fahrenheit right yeah so minus 10 is minus 10 celsius below zero fahrenheit i don't know let me let me get pocket calc out and, and ask <laughs> pocket calc hey siri James. what is minus 10 celsius in fahrenheit 14 14 degrees fahrenheit which is cold yeah. but not as cold as minus 10 fahrenheit okay fair enough it's still pretty cold i'm still, still, pretty I'm still cold. wearing like you yeah. know no pants and proper sure, columbia sure, jacket sure, sure. And, yeah and my sensolate canada you know with the canada logo on them gloves and that kind of stuff yeah from the hudson's bay company all righty now can we move on to what's Let's new move on, please <laughs> <laughs> very, very briefly because i think some of this stuff is easier to see um you know trying out the playground should people pull over first or what you, you really should <laughs> i would not advise trying to trying to check this in the show notes while you're driving uh so uh hacking with swift which is done by uh mr paul hudson at two straws on twitter has done a you know what's new and there's some stuff that um i thought was nice um well to varying degrees some things are like yeah that's super nice like the multiple variadic parameters uh is is pretty nice where sometimes you don't always know precisely how many players do i have precisely how many integers and i don't i don't want to make four slots or two slots i just just you know however many there are send them in and it's not necessarily something you can easily just turn into an array as an example people are wondering you know and presumably it removes the constraint that you can only have what is the number 10 views in swift ui without using a group oh i wonder about that this doesn't talk about that implication but i am curious if you're if you're right there because that was the reason for that they had to because they didn't have uh, multiple variadics uh, like this uh, they had to have explicit signatures for all the different types of view closures uh, for for each number of views so if you look at the implication there's there's one with one view there's two views three views four views and they had to choose a number to stop at so they weren't writing these <laughs> signatures all day long <laughs> right. and they chose I think it was 10. I could be wrong on the number. Mm, yeah, but that, now that they have these, they don't need that anymore. That's good insight. That probably is uh, a good driver for doing this. Um, yeah. There's other smaller quality of life things are like, you know, it's not hugely impactful, but it's like, yeah, this is, this is an obvious thing I like where like having the improved, sorry, improved implicit member syntax with the option here of like, hey, you could change the foreground color to like dot red. It's you know, mm-hmm. implicit what you're doing there. It's shorthand is how I think of it. But, oh, did you want to change to opacity? Well, sorry, compiler is not smart enough to figure that out. So color dot red is what you're going to use. And I'm like, oh, well, now I can do just dot red dot opacity. You know, you know, nice. Cut out all the cruft. Mm. Um, big section.
section of this blog post is talking about result builders, which are um, uh, formally went through the Swift evolution process. So they'll, they'll work as you expect. I'm going to spend a whole lot of time there. Um, having the uh, packages can now in Swift package manager can now declare executable targets, which is pretty nice. Uh, if you wanted to use like at main and not do the thing like, well, it doesn't want to work because it's hard coded to look for main.swift. And um, mm. a couple other things like uh, the property wrappers or uh, local variables. And the example it gives is like a property wrapper ensures that its value never goes below zero. So clamping is is something that seems like it's a whole oh, lot easier. Cute. Yeah, that's yeah. Nice. yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's useful of like, all right, you know, user tries to decrement. All right, well, I'm going to make it so it's not possible to go, you know, below a number and presumably above a number if you wanted to, to clamp. But the quality of life stuff. Mm-hmm. And how could iOS 7 apps save you 500 megs of storage? It's funny that you read it that way because I also <laughs> read this, literally read it that way. No joke. And I was like, why is this in my news feed? That is so old. I was like, oh, it's not iOS 7 apps. It is how seven of such iOS apps could save you 500 megabytes of storage. And I bring this up not as a, oh, like, gosh, let's go shake our fists at these various apps, but more, oh, yeah, it might be an opportunity for folks to take a look at their own apps and say, hmm, I wonder if we're doing something like this. So uh, he's run some sort of analysis here. This is uh, Noah Martin. And some things um, uh, end up bloating up the, the size of your, your installed uh, application, like Dropbox, for example, could hypothetically reduce a lot of its duplicate localization files. I mean, how easy is that to just like let it get duplicated over and over in your your uh, your setups, right? It's like, oh, we we need localization in this new watch target. It's like, all right, whatever, man, just copy the file over and call it good, right? Like it solves your immediate need, but has implications depending on, you know, how much stuff you've got in there. There's um, font files for this Spark app. Uh, what did eBay do? eBay included unnecessary Swift symbols because like some, some framework somewhere was supposed to uh, use a method to strip uh, non-external stream the bulls. There's mm-hmm. like a whole bunch of interesting sort of things here. That I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, if if you're uh, a team of one, I I kind of doubt that you would have these serious issues. I think these things start to happen when you have you know tons of folks all trying to ship and, and get things done, um, and it's it's pretty easy to to lose sight of like, hey, wait a minute, like what what's going here? How big is this thing getting? No, so there's no solution. It's just he's pointing at seven apps that are that are culprits of using extra space right well the solutions here are like don't include these um these extraneous font files but you're talking to dropbox you're not saying the end user Right. No, 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 it's, no, not a, it's a little bit of a clickbaity, uh, clickbaity uh, title. Yeah. yeah, he's basically yeah. saying if these seven companies cleaned up their apps, you as a user who has these seven apps on your phone would save f- 500 megabytes of storage. Hmm. That's that's what that's what the headline means. But really, the story is about how you as a developer can, can do this in your own app. Right, right. Okay, good. No. Like, okay, here's one way down at the bottom. Lyft. The Lyft app has hundreds of duplicate files, the largest of which is a single asset catalog copied 73 times in separate bundles. I'm sure there's really good reasons why that is, right? And and I'm, I'm really looking for like, um, you know, A-B tests and etc. That's probably, it was probably easier to like not have to have like a common team deal with it. But it's also a little silly in, in, the, in the aggregate to have the same asset catalog 73 times in separate bundles. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. And then he said, this one, I, I was wanting to get a, the, the pulse of the, uh, of the panel here. So the title is 
The Diminishing Utility of MF Mail Composed View Controller. It's a very right. short article. It talks about like, hey, prior to iOS 14, the one and true only email app on iOS was the mail app. It comes pre-installed with the device. Right. You can do yeah. other apps, sure, but really you could never know what was going to be going on. So for developers, you'd, you'd say, hey, if this mail composed view controller can send email, or sorry, send mail, um, go ahead and compose it, set your parameters and delegates and move on with life. And that's cool. And that's great. And it will absolutely continue to work in iOS 14. But what this uh, developer, and I'll try to catch their name, um, is proposing is like, well, in the new world, uh, Stuart Breckenridge is the like in it. What they're proposing is like, well, maybe to uh, to be better and more respectful of the user's choices in terms of email apps, whatever they're using, don't use mail compose view controller. Instead, add the mail to scheme, to, uh, the schemes that you handle and use the UI application shared can open URL. And if you can, go ahead and, and open that URL and that'll trigger iOS to say, oh, which of you is the default mail app? Is it you, Gmail? Is it you, Outlook? Cool. Here you go. User wanted open mail. Um, and it has a, a feature request for iOS 15 where default mail app should have some equivalent of MF mail compose. You could, you would... Yeah, I was going to say because like, don't we have to pass if you want to fill out, because um, I do know you, I do use the email use MF mail compose view controller in a few apps where we public we pre-populate some of the some of the mail right um so the user just has to hit mail and then or hit send and it, and it runs through the mail app but um i guess we have to figure out how to pass those very those those properties over to whatever the choice of um email client the person is using i guess right yeah and given what apple has done with other things if if i was an apple engineer designing this i say lopez we need you to come up with a way to do it developers are screaming it's like all right well you know, we have an intense I-N-T-E-N-T-S system for a whole bunch of other things like Siri Kit, for example. Wouldn't it make sense to have a intent that says the user intends to compose some mail and the correct default app gets access to that. It gets fired up and say, like, hey, here you go, Gmail, or here you go, Outlook. Here's the intent, which would have very similar things like you'd need to have a defined subject and recipients and maybe some way to pass information back so that, um, you know, you know, what do you do when you're done with your activity? Maybe you might want to send the user back to whatever app they came from. That's probably how I would implement it. So if we see it in iOS 15, MTJC bump, we're going to reclaiming it now. <laughs> it, it seems to me there might be a way to do it. All, well, there's close to a way to doing it already today. I, don't, I can't say 100% that it exists. If the, the well, the, the assumption I think has to be that the third party mail tool has to obviously be involved, installed on your phone, right? So if it is, why can't that third-party mail app just write some kind of an extension? And so it pops up. So there's a there's a mail extension, right? That pops up in your share sheet right next to the Apple Mail, mm-hmm. and there's the Gmail extension, and you just choose that one instead. Right, that's possible. So you would see it's it like bringing up a, a sharing sheet kind of thing versus yeah, yeah, having like this is the default app I use. I wanted to just bypass the sharing sheet selection. Like maybe it would show it the first time, but have like a checkbox or something like use as the default way to open these well i mean it's a it's a different use model for the user right now you know you, you'll your user will tap a button or something and it'll pop up the share sheet and you populate the share sheet uh, or equivalently you can package up all the information and open an activity control view controller and have them maybe choose message or maybe choose whatever or or choose mail and then it gets populated in the mail if they choose that route both of those are possible right now so so in order to uh, allow 
allow a third-party mail tool to do it, there'd have to be some kind of hook where where your third-party app would show up in the in the share sheet, just like or the the activity controller sheet, right? Uh, instead of or in addition to the Apple Mail one. But that seems like it's close to existing right now. But there there may not be a, an extension uh, an extension point for mail. I, I don't know. I haven't it's been a while since I looked at that stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I'm un, I'm unsure. Yeah, yeah, but something interesting that I thought very short here to think about of like, oh yeah, we just sort of take for granted that mail compose view controller exists, but yep. maybe it should yep. be replaced by something a little bit more modern given that the operating system has evolved over the, the last decade. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I do have a couple of apps that use it and I'm just trying them right now and it seems to seems to work okay, but then I'm still using the default um, the default mail composer, right? Oh, wait, one link's not working. Oh no, people can't email me. I guess I have to do an update. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, I, I tried one app and, it, and sure enough, the composer did open, but the second one seems to be broken. Anywho. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll move on to our picks portion of the show. Um, should I go first, Tommy? Sure. Yeah. So I was on the Swift UI bandwagon this weekend, and I just happened to notice this uh, as I was working away on my little Swift UI app. I sometimes had, in one example, I was using a, a floating button uh, above my view, my view, where basically I was using a Z, a Z, like a Z stack, I guess to call it, where you have like you can have overlapping elements, and uh, so the button was sort of floating around the bottom of my form, and when the keyboard opened up, it kind of obscured the button. So there's a really interesting article here on a Swift, Swift UI keyboard avoidance, which is something we've all been wrestling with in our entire iOS careers. Um, and so in uh, some really interesting art uh, examples here, he's got like in his, his text here, he's got like a small little a view with a couple of boxes, one's red, one's yellow, and then he calls up the keyboard when you tap on a form element. And uh, in some cases, the uh, views shrink to make room for the keyboard, or sometimes they don't. And so you, he's got a couple of examples here on how you can change the size of your views um, or not to um, basically uh, allow the keyboard to have enough room and not not obscure or obscure your your view your view your view or your view elements. Um, there's a ignore safe air safe edges you can opt out of uh, if you don't want to have it um, uh, play a lot play nicely or not, or not right. So just a couple of quick legal examples here. Some with some code you can play around with to try and um, see how they behave in different circumstances cool you guys have watched the little videos and yeah it, it is nice um and it's not as if uh there weren't solutions out there and they, they point mm-hmm. out that you either you know took the snippet off of stack overflow or you <laughs> you pulled in a cocoa pod or something but it is, it's kind of nice to just have the default behavior or just do what you would expect it to do right you know and and yes i'm sure there's folks that might have very specific needs but it it always felt for a very long time of you know this is a really common use case and having some default handling that's you know pretty sensible is mm-hmm. a um, you know it re- reduces the the sort of barrier to entry right it lowers the floor of look man I just I just want to get to the next part of the app that's actually fun not the keyboard avoidance <laughs> part that I'm going to spend the next eight hours fighting with yeah well and there was for one app I was working on we had a number of fields in the in the view and of course we had to animate based on which field you were on and then once you left that field you had to animate back to put your view back to view back the way it was and then of course 
course, and Apple started coming up with different size phones, and yeah, just it's it's been fun. And then, of course, you have iPad versus iPhone, and what do you do in one case and not the other? And uh, the easiest way was always to use auto layout and just have the yeah have the uh, the bottom view constrained to the bottom of the of the safe area, yeah. the safe area mm-hmm. uh, with a variable constraint, and then just in that observer that when the when the keyboard opens, just grab the height of the keyboard and set the set that that size constraint right. to yep. the size of the keyboard. Boom! Automagical. Yeah, that's what I started doing in later later years. But I think yep. yeah, up until that point, it was up until auto layout got sensible because auto layout went through its sort of sure. pains as well, yeah. right? Yeah. So I was doing a lot of frame animations and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Bob. Um, the next one, I'm, I was going to talk about SwiftUI Jam, but I just found out that they're closing the uh, the um, registration midnight tomorrow, which basically means that by the time the show comes out, it's too late. So if you didn't listen to last week's show and get and get signed up for the SwiftUI Jam. It's in Toronto, but it's virtual, so it doesn't matter where you come from. But uh, if you were lucky enough to, to find out about that, you can uh, you can join us in on the week of the weekend of the nineteenth. I think it's a, t- a couple of days event starts on Friday, ends on Sunday. Um, and uh, yet another iOS Dev Happy Hour is coming up on February twentieth, which is the same weekend. Um, we're meeting at four p.m. EST Eastern Standard Time. Um, and I can tell you, I went to the last the last event. Um, don't be fooled by the name Happy Hour the majority of people were drinking water um, but uh, we the way it worked is we had um, uh, basically a large room with you know pages and pages of people on the zoom call I think we had 370 at one point um, and uh, on the main main stage if you want to call it that uh, they had a couple of people do some quick talks you know talking about their their careers iOS developers and that kind of stuff and some you know uh, human interest kind of angles and then we broke off into um, breakout rooms and uh, where you met, you know, you hung out with uh, four to five other developers and talked about, you know, COVID and how they're dealing with things and where they work and what part of the world they're from. I mean, I, I, was, I was hanging out with people in California and some people in Europe and, and that kind of stuff in some of the breakout rooms. And, and there were some names there. If you're, if you're looking to meet up with some names, they were, there were some people who were there that uh, if you follow on the Twitter, she might, uh, you know, be interested to meet or say hello to and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's kind of interesting little uh, thing, but that's coming up on the 20th of February and you can get your ticket through Eventbrite and there'll be a link in the show notes and I'll be there and I'll see you then. Over to you, Jaime. Yeah, mine is uh, something that I found. I don't remember who was the original source. I'm sorry. Maybe I saw it on Twitter or something, but it's called um, GitHub 1S or possibly one second is the way it's intended to be read, given that the tagline in the readme says one second to read GitHub with, uh, with Visual Studio Code. It's kind of neat. So what I understand this to be doing under the cover is actually another thing about it, something I'll talk about later because first I should tell you why you should care. Well, if you were ever like, hmm, I wonder, 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 wonder what this code that I'm looking at on the interwebs on GitHub would uh, would look like if I had like a, a real IDE around it, right? Because sometimes, you know, even as nice as as GitHub has made its whole um, UI and it does some, some URL, sorry, um, syntax highlighting, um, it's not quite the same as seeing, you know, this drill down view that does doesn't exactly replicate mentally what these folders going to look like and etc etc. So this here is a nice little trick where anything we even have had like you know their example is github.com slash Microsoft slash VS code. That's the repository for Visual Studio code. You just change that to github 1s.com and then the rest of the path and you get this nice web-based Visual Studio code uh, view of, of that. So for folks 
that are curious to see in action, I threw a link in the show notes here that is uh, the Vapor project. So similar. What would be github.com slash vapor slash vapor is github, github1s.com slash vapor slash vapor. If you fire that up, you're like, oh, here's Visual Studio Code running in a web version. And uh, oh, I can click through and see future.swift and see everything sort of as the way nature intended the syntax highlighting to work. I can see the exact sort of uh, file system or directory layout for this project. Um, I don't know that something like Swift would run in here, but um, let's see why it why it couldn't, given that Visual Studio Code is uh, not only a pretty popular um, text editor and you know nascent IDE. What I think this is probably using under the covers is um, Microsoft has done a whole lot of work to make something I think called Code Spaces or something similar. They they changed product names like a dozen times, so apologies if I have the wrong name. But they're really trying to integrate VS Code into the um, the GitHub experience where if you're like, hmm, I see a bug here. It's like, well, rather than cloning the repo or changing to a branch, it's like, hey, what if I just was able to do all of that through the browser, through the editor? And and rather than trying to edit with a uh, sort of meager text editor, it's like, what if you just use something as powerful as VS Code in the cloud, in your browser to do this? And that part's speculation because it's not explicitly listed in what's going on there, but I, I, I can read the tea leaves and say, hey, I, I think I know what's going on here. That's right. Microsoft bought GitHub, didn't they? They did. They did. And yeah. there there was like VS Code code spaces, or maybe it was GitHub code spaces and a similar-ish product that was like VS Code in the cloud or something. And I think that's what this individual, uh, ConWNet is the username, or NetCon, I guess, is maybe what the user is supposed to be read as uh, when I click on their profile. It's just neat. Like if you ever, I, I haven't tried doing any development type work with this, but being able to see the layout like you would see it in a an actual ID is really nice. It's a lot easier than just trying to click through these different folders that are broken down a little differently for um, the way that GitHub's traditional UI shows things. Okay, doke. Right. Well, I guess that's it for another week. So, hey, Jaime, if people want to get in touch with you, where will they find you? I'm on Twitter as at DevOfTheHair. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you? Mark R at Smapsoft.com. Right. And as usual, my name is Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. So until next time, we'll say bye-bye. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fireside.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends, leave a comment on the website, or write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so use the hashtag AskMTJC and we may mention you on the show. Friends of the show can also join us on the podcast Slack channel. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Every dollar pledged helps a lot. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.